Good evening, everyone. It's so lovely to see you all here at this sold-out event in this fabulous hall that seems to be made for storytelling, especially now the clocks have gone back. Um, um, it's customary to say um, people need no introduction um, and then to go on and give an introduction anyway, which is exactly what I'm going to do, because although Kate and Michelle's reputation definitely precedes them, um, I'll just give you a little pracy about their recent work. Um, I'm Elizabeth Day. I'm an author and a journalist at The Observer. Um, Michelle Roberts is an author, a poet, and emeritus professor of creative writing at the University of East Anglia. Her latest book, Ignorance, tells the story of two young girls who grow up in a convent school in the French provinces and whose lives take very different paths during the occupation of France in World War II. Ignorance is an extraordinarily evocative and moving book, touching on themes of religious hypocrisy and bourgeois morality against a backdrop of collaboration and compromise. The daughter of a French mother and an English father, Michelle was herself educated at a convent before losing her Catholic faith while reading English at Oxford. I hope that's still right. <laughs> um, yet much of her fiction is still guided by these early experiences, or what Michelle herself describes as the nun in my head, that monstrous mother superior. Um, Kate Moss has recently launched Citadel, the eagerly anticipated final instalment of her marvellous Longer Doc trilogy. Its publication is an achievement not only of literary merit, but of sheer perseverance. It marks the end of 23 years of research into the hidden politics and hidden religions of France. Kate and her family divide their time between Chichester and Carcassonne in the south of France, a city which, as many of you know, provides the backdrop for her best-selling books, which have sold millions of copies in over 40 countries. As well as this, Kate also found the time to launch the Orange Prize in 1996. Citadel is a pacey, epic tale of love and war, and tells the story of a female resistance unit operating in occupied France. It intertwines their experience with the attempt to discover an ancient Christian codex that will help them defeat the Nazis. And luckily enough, we're going to have um, readings from both Michelle and Kate. So I will hand over to Michelle, first of all. Okay. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, for that beautiful introduction. Thanks to all of you for coming tonight. Thanks to the Durham Festival for inviting me. And um, thanks to Kate for being here with me. What could be a lovelier evening? This is a novel that's really... Um, also looking at the form of the memoir, because when people of my parents' generation who'd lived through the war talked about it, they talked about their memories, and these memories changed as time went on, sometimes darkened and deepened as they felt more able to tell the truth. But talking to a lot of people whom I still know in France, um, who witnessed the war at very, and the occupation at very close quarters, and, of course, thinking about how any of us um, uses our memories, it just struck me that um, memory is, it is very unreliable and it's very like fiction and that we seem to make up the memories we can bear to live with. So this novel sort of takes off on quite a formal question. I'm sorry if that sounds pompous, but that is the way it is. You know, how do we shape our memories? How do we recount memories that we can bear to live with? So Jeanne here is the main narrator. The book's written in the past tense, which let me think of Jeanne 
as a young woman who lived through the occupation in France and then ended up in England, looking back at some future unspecified point over the past, and not only telling her story to herself, and of course to any of us who want to hear it, but also trying to imagine how the people she knew, loved, worked with, fell out with, lost, might have told their stories. So she's the kind of overarching narrator, but in between, the stories of other people appear, dreamed up by her. She grows up Jewish, with a Jewish mother, her father's died, and in this small town, as the 30s are going on and the threat of fascism um, is getting closer, there's already a great deal of anti-Semitism in France. Jeanne's mother decides they must convert, hoping she'll save them that way. So nominally, they become Catholics. Jeanne makes friends with a man whom she calls Monsieur Jacoté. He's a local artist in the town. And without asking her mother's permission, or indeed that of the nuns, uh, not only does she make friends with him, but she begins to sit for him. And she also realizes she'd like to, to become an artist. So I'll, you've, you've said you're only reading very, very briefly. So I'm just I'm... gonna shoot a couple of people and stop. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, I'm going, I'm going to read Read as much briefly as you too. want, because yours no. is beautiful. Well, no, yours is too. <laughs> this, is, this is Jeanne remembering um, she's 13 and the days she spends sitting for Monsieur Jacoté, getting him to teach her how to draw and paint. And one of the um, bargains they make is that if she will sit for him for a certain amount of time, he will play with her a game that she has invented that she really likes. It's a form of hide-and-seek. And so one of the things she does is go exploring in the house and she finds his dead wife's wardrobe. His favourite of his wife's dresses was the red silk one. On the days when I wanted to keep him in a good humour to make sure the game would go on, I chose to wear it and chose to let him find me. Eventually, he used the sketches as a basis for completing a painting a portrait of his wife he'd begun years earlier. You could name her clothes according to the time of day. The clock struck and the clothes changed. A morning dress, an afternoon dress, an evening dress. The best of her frocks, a white silk evening dress I didn't dare wear for some time. It seemed too grand. When I riffled through the tight pleats and folds of material in the wardrobe, I'd sweep my hands over it then pass on to something else, softer and more ordinary, easier to get into, something I could cope with. Finally, one day, after we'd been playing our games for some weeks, I plucked out the queen. I felt ready for her and that she was ready for me. In her unheated room, shivering, I took off all my clothes, lifted up her dress and dropped it over my head. Sleeveless, backless, it swept down to the floor and swirled about my feet. I fastened it together at the side. Tiny buttons covered in white silk like pearl beads slipped into white silk loops. The dress captured me. It held me, stroked me like two hands in silk gloves. Sprays of artificial white flowers encircled the waist and scattered the skirt. On top went a close-fitting little jacket in matching white silk. I drew on white lace stockings and inserted my feet into white high heels, 
crisscrossed with straps of thin white braid, fastened with diamante studs. I teetered a few steps. How did you walk in these? Just concentrate. Shut your eyes. Imagine. Now I was wearing her, my second skin, the other one. I'd searched for her. I'd got closer to her week by week. We'd met at last. For these few moments, she was my true self. Then I'd have to shed her and return to washed-out grey pinafores. We held each other, a calm and precise embrace. Can you waltz? Yes. I raised my arms and took a couple of turns with her around the floor. One, two, three. One, two, three. I whispered in her ear and she whispered back, her warm lips against my skin. I shouted up to him to start searching and began counting to a hundred. I slithered under the purple silk coverlet of the bed and pulled it back up over my face. Smooth on my cheeks, it, felt, it smelled faintly of dust. I buried myself in the bed. I flattened myself into the quilt, wriggling until I lay in a trough of down as thin as I could be. I calmed my breath, breathed as shallowly as possible so there'd be no telltale rise and fall of fabric when he came in. His feet clattered down the stairs, across the landing, straight to the door. Bang, in he came, steps across the floorboards. 56, 57, halt, I held my breath. 58, 59, the cover ripped itself back like a wave of water. His blue eyes faded no more, blazed at me, blue water fire. I gazed up at him. He was crying. I lifted the corner of the quilt. Come on, get in. <laughs> <laughs> quite disappointing you've stopped actually <laughs> it always brings such a new aspect to it when you hear authors read it it's wonderful thank you Kate can I hand over to you yes thank you um for just to re um, reiterate what Michelle has said I came to the Durham festival I can't remember when a couple of years ago and it was so nice that I said, if they invite me back, please, can I go? Um, because the book actually sort of publishes properly tomorrow and the campaign starts tomorrow. But So this is an eve of publication and it is brilliant to be back here. Now, um, some of you I know will have probably have come to that earlier event I did. So forgive me if I repeat things that you've heard. Um, but this Citadel, this new novel, is the end, as Elizabeth said, of... 23 years of having lived a little bit in France and a little bit at home in Sussex. And it started when we went to Carcassonne in 1989, completely by chance. Um, my wonderful mother-in-law, who lives with us in England, as indeed does my mum, she had a friend who had a friend who was an estate agent in Sussex, who had a friend who was twinned with an estate agent in Carcassonne. Um, and I've often thought, you can imagine since then, what would have happened if uh, she was twinned with an estate agent in Bogner? I mean, nothing would have happened. I never would have written. Um, but we went there for the first time in um, November 1989, and we bought this tiny little house in the shadow of the medieval city walls of Carcassonne. And we got off the train, and we walked down through the Bastide, the modern town, 
And you, I'm sure many of you will know that thing that happens in, in the south of France out of season, which is that at one minute past seven, when the shops have shut, everyone vanishes and it is a deserted ghost town. And so we walked down and all we could hear was our own footsteps and it was drizzling and it was dark. And we got to the Pont Vieux, the old bridge that sort of goes over the river, the river Aude, which separates the modern town, the 14th century town, from the medieval city, which is on the other side of the river. And I just saw that extraordinary fortified, I later learned restored, uh, medieval city of Carcassonne. And I fell in love. You know, I didn't know anything about it. My French was poor. Um, I knew nothing about the region, but it just started a love affair that has never gone, really. And over those years, I started to write and wanted to write a sequence of novels that told a key piece of history in the turning, uh, sort of turning point, I suppose, in my adopted part of France. So in Labyrinth, it was the crusade against the Cathars in 1209 to 1214. In Sepulchre, it was the moment at which um, there had been, in a way, a loss of hope after the defeat of the Commune and the Franco-Prussian War before it, and that there was a sort of generation of lost men in particular. Um, and in Citadel, it is the Second World War, 1942 to 1944, and as Elizabeth said, a sort of uh, the, the backstory, the time slip part of the story is the fourth century. And these two periods of history seem to work very well together. One, because the history of the Languedoc, for me, as an outsider, if you like, seems to repeat. It is one of invasion, of resistance, of collaboration, of assimilation, and then an uneasy kind of peace, and then it starts over. So in the fourth century, the Roman Empire was falling apart, Soon there would be invasions, the Visigoths from the east, and a little bit later from the south would be the Muslim invasion. Um, there was a sense of Christianity just starting to take hold, but it was a battle between um, a sort of more mystical Gnostic Christi Christianity and a sort of dead hand of what would become the Catholic Church. And there was a period of time when many of the more spiritual texts were burnt. And of course, in uh, the build-up National Socialism and the Second World War, there were mass burnings of books, mostly by you know, uh, authors that were Jewish authors, but, but also non-conformist authors of all kinds. And so for me, they seem to be the two periods of history. I always have two periods. Um, and in Citadel, the modern period is the Second World War. And the reason for that is that my lovely dad, who died last year, fought in the war. He was in Belgium, and towards the end of his life, um, as he was dying, and we were lucky enough to spend every day together, because we all lived together, um, he talked about his experiences in the war, exactly as Michelle says, in the way that people often didn't. And he was a British soldier in Belgium, so he, he wasn't seeing the horror that people who were living under occupation were, or the people who went into the camps did. But it was that sense of, he always had that, um, not shame, but mystification that all of the things that came out in 1945, once the camps were opened, once it became clear quite what had happened, he was a young foot soldier. And that sense of having not quite known 
as a boy never quite left him, that sense that they should have known more than they did. Um, and so talking to him and then talking to my mum and my mother-in-law, who were children in the war, one was uh, um, uh, evacuated and one lived in the country and had evacuees on them. It, may, it felt for me, therefore, that this was living history. This was our history. So this became the modern period of time. And the inspiration for Citadel is having been in Carcassonne all of those years, and after a while, you, you, know, you, you take in the beautiful surroundings, you know, as we are in this hall now. But if I came to this hall every day, I would start to notice tiny little details. At the moment, I'm seeing the extraordinary portraits, the incredible lanterns, the angels at the top. But after a while, when you get to know somewhere, you notice the bit of wood that's a bit warped over there. And so it was for me with Carcassonne, with the Bastide, that after a while, nobody likes the, the Bastide as much as the medieval city. Everybody goes there and they like all the crenellations and all of those things. But after a while, you start to notice that all the main streets in the Bastide have been renamed for resistance fighters who died. And then a little bit after that, you start to notice that the date of death on all the street signs is the same. And that is unusual, obviously. And being nosy sort of person, novelists are mostly nosy, I started to want to know what had happened on the 19th of August, 1944, that they all should have died that day. And what I discovered was that the resistance in Carcassonne had all been rounded up during the course of July 1944. They'd mostly been held in the prison in Carcassonne. Um, Carcassonne was part of what was called the free zone, laughably, um, but it therefore was not occupied until the 11th of November 1942, when the Germans crossed the demarcation line. So the history of resistance in the south, in Carcassonne, is not that of Paris. It's not that in the two-thirds that was occupied after France fell very quickly in, in May and June 1940. And they were all held in the prison. And then the day before the Germans left, and this is something that I still find incredibly tragic, I suppose, because if you lose a loved person, the, the pain is there, of course it is. But that sense that they nearly made it, that 24 hours would have made the difference. Somehow, it's like that incredible last chapter in All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, when he dies on a day when nothing much happened. And that is just, so it's that sense of nearly having got away with it, but not quite. And they were all taken to a place called the Chateau de Baudrigue outside Carcassonne, which is a beautiful, uh, sort of, we'd call it a stately home. Um, they call it a domain. Um, and it had been used as a munition store by the um, uh, Nazi uh, um, troops. And there they were all, they all had hand grenades put in their mouths and they were all blown up. And it was a quite extraordinary act of spite. The only reason for that was so they could not be identified. What, what, what was the purpose of that? And they were withdrawing and they left that night. And by the 20th, the Germans had gone from Carcassonne. Over the years, amazing French historians have identified everybody. They have identified uh, Jean Branchier, 
codenamed Muriel, who was the leader of the Carcassonne resistance. They have identified his deputy, Amy Raymond, who was a serving police officer, and I'm sure, and he, I've always thought he sounds a very romantic character, and clearly did an enormous amount of good in helping other people to escape. And then all of the other men um, who were there that day. And there are now, since 2009, three tombs in the parkland of Baudrigue, one for Muriel, one for Amy Raymond, and one for all the other men who died. At the bottom of that tombstone um, is a line that simply says this, and two unknown women. And that was the starting point for this novel, because as I did more and more research and started to talk to the parents and grandparents of friends of ours in Carcassonne, it became clear that many, many women were part of the resistance in Carcassonne in active roles. Um, but they, for whatever reason, just don't really appear in the history books. And those two women, uh, nobody ever knew, knows who they were. Nobody will find out who they are. And the thought of their husbands or their sons or their daughters or their sisters or their cousins never knowing, um, I can't as a historian, I'm not a historian, I can't write that story. But as a novelist, I thought, you know, I could write a story about who those women might have been. And Citadel is dedicated to those two women. And it is out of the research of Carcassonne, which was that there were many women who served actively and bravely, and they were not just the girlfriends of the men hiding in the hills and who were in the resistance or the Maki, but they were as brave doing their own thing. And after the war was over, many of them just wanted to go back into the shadows. It, you know, they didn't necessarily want to be identified. Some did, um, but many didn't. And so my lead character is a young woman called Sandrine. When the novel starts, she is, um, as all my heroines tend to be, and actually Michelle's often are, um, 17, 18. They are girls about to become women, aren't they? Because they're brave and they are not yet restrained by what society is telling them they must do. And she, over the period of time, starts to realize what is really going on. She starts to see neighbors who do turn away when their Jewish neighbors are taken away and those who decide not to. And little by little, a band of women grows up that becomes the, the network that is known as the Citadel Network. The novel starts in a prologue on the 19th of August, 1944, the day that they were all executed. And it finishes in a prologue on the 19th of August, 2009, when the current mayor of Carcassonne dedicated those tombstones. And obviously the novel happens in between. Um, and I'm gonna read a tiny amount from that prologue, um, the 19th of August, 1944. Um, and what has happened at this moment is that Sondrine and her, her gang of girls, as I think of them, have lured to a village called Custosa, um, which is between Carcassonne and the Pyrenees. Um, the novel, um, although you can read it completely if you've not read any of the other novels, it's a standalone novel, but equally if you had, you will recognize some of the landscapes that have appeared in Labyrinth and Sepulchre, and a little bit the Winter Ghosts. And they have lured the um, collaborationist police, the milice, the militia, and the Nazi occupying force to Custosa in order to try to defeat them. But something has gone wrong, and therefore they have arrived earlier, and the women are not quite ready for them. And so this is just a tiny snippet from the end of the prologue. She knows she is outnumbered, at least seven to one, but she has no choice now but to show herself. Besides, she can see him, 
in plain clothes, standing with his right hand resting on the black bonnet of the car and his mauser hanging loose in his left. He looks calm, disengaged, as the firefight rages around him. Sophie drops the hammer on her pistol and steps out into the light. Let them go. Does she say the words out loud or only in her head? Her voice seems to be coming from a long way away, distorted or whispering beneath stormy waters. It's me you want, not them. Let them go. It's not possible that he should hear her, and yet, despite the noise and the shouting and the sound of the machine guns, he does. He hears her, and he turns, looking straight to the northeast corner of the Place de la Marie, where she has positioned herself. Those eyes. Is he smiling, she wonders, or does it pain him that it should be ending like this? Then he says her name, her real name not her code name. The soft music of it hangs suspended in the air between them. Threat or entreaty, she can't tell, but she feels her resolve weaken. He says it again, and this time it sounds bitter, false in his mouth, a betrayal. The spell is broken. The woman known as Sophie lifts her arm and shoots. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate. That was um, fascinating and also very, very moving. Um, I, I think that in both of your books, there's a sense of what remains hidden from view, disturbing occurrences that happen and that are either just not talked about or ignored from a sort of consensual blindness almost. Michelle, can I start with you and ask, um, was Occupied France a sort of deliberate choice for you? Because it's, it seems like a sort of classic environment where that kind of thing happens and that you can explore. Is that why you chose it? I think partly I felt pushed to, to write this story, partly because my mother, in her last seven years, began to talk to me in a way she'd never talked before. We'd have dinner and we wouldn't quarrel about feminism or my <laughs> disgusting sex life or my revolting politics or my lack of joy about the Tory party. Um, <laughs> I'd cook dinner, she'd open the red wine and we'd have a merry time and she would tell me stories. And they weren't always... They, were, they never were full, proper stories with an ending and a beginning. They were little fragments, they were little images... I felt quite haunted by these images that she just sort of threw into the dark. So there was one of Tante Lucienne in a big white hat, and then there was the bag of silver on the table. When we came back, it had been nicked. Um, and these images, I think in the way that images can work, started to expand and blossom and want to get connected to other images. And then because my mother died, and I couldn't ask her, I so wish I had, what did that mean? What was the context? Um, I began to, to weave a story. Also, I was very aware, I, I live in northwest France, um, so it was the occupied zone. Um, darling neighbours getting older were beginning to die, and their stories were dying. But luckily, um, people were doing sort of memoir groups and recording stuff, so you, you could actually hear about what it had been like to live through the war. 
But I think it, it was quite a personal sense of being haunted. And then a, a very horrible thing that happened, I'm so ashamed about it, but my French grandfather, who lived through the war in Normandy with the family, he was the chief engineer in the docks in Le Havre, which was, of course, a major port in the north, in the occupied zone. And all through my childhood, he'd given us stories about what a hero he'd been. And, well, of course, he couldn't be in the resistance, but he was unofficially in the resistance. And, whoa! And, you know, Grandpère was a hero. And then, of course, after his death, I began to put things together and realise that he'd survived by keeping his head down. I mean, he was working under the Nazis day in, day out. He was a collaborator with a small C. I don't think he was particularly fascistic or anti-Semitic, but, you know, kept his head down. After the war, he actually fled to Canada for a few years. He thought he'd get into trouble. And I was so devastated by this. Um, writing was the only way to kind of keep sane, really, to try and understand what is it to be a collaborator. Would I have been one? You know, what would I have done? Because that's the, the moral question. It's not to point the finger and say, oh, they're so wicked and evil, which is what happened a lot after the war. You know, lots of women got shaved and w w were punished for having ever had sex with a German. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to say, what's it like to be someone who's got to keep his head down? So there were quite personal pressures to, to invent this story, because it's an invented story. It isn't a true story, it's a novel. It's interesting that you've, you've both been inspired by your parents and the death in both instances. I hadn't realised that there was that, that, that comparison. But, you, Kate, you've touched on the fact that you often... Um, both of you write about sort of young girls on the threshold of adulthood. And uh, was there a sense there that you wanted to um, look at girls who are just beginning to understand what's going on around them, both in terms of their personal life, but also the political stage. And, and how easy did you find it to remember that state of mind yourself? Well, yes, I completely agree with what Michelle just said there, because the thing is that, as a novelist, our, our job is to say, what if? It isn't to say, this person was good and this person was bad. And it's, it is very hard to know. We all hope that if we were called to account, we would be brave and courageous and know the right thing to do. But it is entirely clear in France that people didn't know how it was going to play out and good people made the wrong, as we would see it, the wrong decision for the sakes of their families or whatever, in that a lot of people thought that, apart from anything else, when France surrendered and signed the armistice, and the government behaved, well, they did behave atrociously and fled to, you know, a spa town <laughs> called Vichy. But a lot of people at that point genuinely believed that Pétain, who was the great hero of the First World War for the French, had a plan. And they genuinely thought that the people blowing stuff up were jeopardizing the future of France. So I think we've made the same decision, which was to focus on people who are young and trying to sort of understand the adult, the, the weirdnesses of adults, apart from anything else. And I think that it's very liberating to have lead characters who are young people, um, because there is that sense that they are often quite arrogant. All of us who have teenagers know that sort of, really? No, no, we really, we are a lot older. We do know <laughs> that, you know, it's, you know, it's that sort of thing. There is an arrogance, which is a bravery. And certainly by the end of the war, the period I'm writing about, an enormous number of the people in the resistance in Carcassonne are teenagers. They are young people and in their early 20s. Because most of the men by that stage are either in 
you know, prison of war camps, or they're out in hiding, or they are, in inverted commas, collaborating with a big or a small C. So there is this very strange sort of atmosphere of youngsters and women in most of the towns. And, you know, I have teenagers. Well, they're not teenagers anymore. I should be honest about that. I am getting older each year. Um, they were teenagers. Um, and I... And I as a, as a woman, I remember that sense of that fearlessness. And, you know, there is no doubt that a lot of what was going on in, in Carcassonne towards the end of the war, particularly with messages and all of those things, were being taken by women from place to place because women could move about still. And young men really couldn't because they were being sent by the STO to Germany, technically. Um, so for me, it's always that. It's that sense of somebody who is having their eyes opened to society as it really is, which is a great way for us as novelists to share that with the reader. Um, it is that sense of not having so much to lose. The minute you become a parent, you become vulnerable in a completely different way. And I, I don't make any more than Michelle's judgment on parents who, if they have someone standing in front of them saying, I will shoot your three-year-old child unless you tell me where those people are hidden, you know, you want to think that your morality about what was happening would come through, but would it if it's your child? You just don't know. Most of us are lucky enough to not know. I think what's interesting as well is that institutions played a major role in how brave people could feel. So that I think that there were some Catholics, even though the Catholic Church itself, I'm afraid to say, had really strong anti-Semitic yeah. views and could line up with fascistic groups easy as pie, there were also Catholics who used their sense of solidarity and community to help Jews, because that's the great untold story in some of the kind of gung-ho, heroic stories about the resistance. Um, and I was really interested in that, and as I did research, I found that, of course, Jewish people were organising as Jewish people to help each other. And that was another great untold story. I mean, the, the, the heroes of the resistance in my childhood and even adulthood, you know, they were always gorgeous young men, you know, Catholics or not, peasants, workers, but they weren't Jewish and they weren't socialists. There was a sort of secret history of what Jewish totally. people, socialist yeah. people, communist people were doing. And they, they were the backbone of the resistance. And, and as Kate says, because so many men had been taken away to Germany on forced labour, or they'd been in the first, you know, battles and just flung into German prison of war camps. Um, women did have to take on, you know, huge burdens. Like in the countryside, they had to get the harvest in completely by themselves. They'd never, ever had to do this and run the house, you know, and look after the children and the old people. Uh, so... It's, do you think of yourselves, both of you, as authors whose writing is informed by, by feminism? Well, in a way, I do, uh, and I'm proud to say I do, because I think one of the things feminism has done for us, men and women alike, of course, is to make us think about the stories that aren't recorded, the stories that aren't told in the official literature. For example, if you're researching the lives of women in the 18th century, just ordinary women like people in this hall, it's really hard to find anything, unless those women came up against the law and then they're recorded in the archives. So you get all this absolutely amazing material about women as robbers and vagrants and, you know, having to work as prostitutes. And Kate was invoking a religious history around the Cathars. Well, because there were these Cathar trials, 
the testimony of women is, is, is recorded and you suddenly hear the voices of 14th century women. It's fantastic. Mm. So feminism, for me, on, on that level of writing, is about encouraging us to find these secret hidden stories or, or make them up, sure. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And I, I think also that um, one of the things that's very interesting about the Southwest is that, um, and this goes back to the history in, in Labyrinth and that moment, the, the crusade against the Cathars, that Catharism was an extraordinary form of Christianity. Um, it, was, it had male and female priests. It would be 800 years after the defeat of the Cathars before that was to happen again. Um, Cathars believed in reincarnation and they believed in the word and the spirit and not in physical trappings of um, faith. And my aunt, my lovely aunt who died this year, <laughs> I sound like the kiss of death, it's awful, but you know, um, who died in her 90s, she was one of the women who founded the movement for the ordination of women. And she was just always a priest. And in the end, the not being allowed to be a priest was just too much. Um, but it was, so it's that spirit of each person being able to shine in the way that they should. And and be able to do what they can for other people, or write what they can, or be what they can, and it works both ways. So for me, as a, as a writer, although my lead character, my heroes are women, these are old-fashioned adventure stories, um, and they are with a twist, in that the heroes are women, but they are supported by men who love them. And that is the point for me, that actually everybody was working together, and it's just where you put the spotlight. And I, my love of adventure stories comes from, you know, again, from my dad, who, because I was the eldest of three girls, and my two younger sisters are much closer in age, my poor mum had to do the bath and bedtime things with the toddlers. And my dad was, you know, sent to read me the bedtime stories. And he was a chap of a certain age and had no idea what was appropriate to read at bedtime. So he read me when I was five... King Solomon's Mines, which is just sex and violence from start to finish. Um, but also with an incredibly wonderful male hero, um, which people forget, you know, that Quartermain, I don't know, has anybody read King Solomon's Mines or she? Oh, shamefully few. Thank you, <laughs> waving at the back, exactly. Quartermain is a very feminine hero. So he's this wonderful chap, and you know you can imagine him in his clothes, and he's going into the dark interior, as it's always described when anybody ever goes off a boat beyond France. It's always the dark <laughs> interior. But he's forever failing, forever bursting into tears, forever going, I can't do this, I need to be rescued. No, he's, and he, it's exactly that spirit of, oddly, those old adventure stories were much less macho-y, you know, women standing on the hillside going, oh, save me. And when I was writing Labyrinth, I said to my dad, I'm writing an old-fashioned adventure story, Daddy, with um, the difference is that it's the women who are charging around with swords getting to save people. And he looked at me and said, darling, I've waited all of my life for a woman with a sword to rescue me. <laughs> I thought, hooray, I've got one reader at least. <laughs> and now many millions more. But um, both of you have set your books in historical periods. Um, and I just wondered how much work that takes. I know that sounds like a facile question, but, <laughs> but I imagine you have to do an enormous amount and then almost discard it just so you have the freedom to write stories, people's stories, without being bogged down by historical detail. So, Michelle, how, how much work did it actually take? Oh, there was, there was a lot, and that, that was right, because, you know, it's a very serious subject. So... You're writing about the Holocaust in a way, and I think 
one of the responses which is kind of right is that you avert your face and you do a sort of salute. I couldn't write directly about what happened to my Jewish characters once they'd been taken away. I was really interested in the small-town mentality that let that happen, because that, I think, is the great shame of France yeah. and of yeah. the resistance. The resistance did not prevent the Jews being taken away to the camps. So I, mean, I read, it felt right, you know, it just felt the right thing to do. Masses and masses and masses. But what interested me was that there's a new wave of history being written, so that after the war you got, well, you'd get people like Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre, and you'd get the heroes of the resistance writing their memoirs and novels, you know, giving a certain slant, needing to put things in a certain light. All these years later, this new wave of historians, not only have they uncovered memoirs written by women or women who are willing to give testimony, but they've, they've just begun to look at things differently and there's a kind of quarrel going on amongst historians. Mm. So I found that really interesting to pursue. And then I talked to, to living survivors. And then, as you say, I let it go and began to imagine. And that's where form comes in. Because it seemed to me the only way to tell my story was to cast it as, as a memoir, as a series of memoirs with these voices that cut across each other and contradict each other. So if you read the novel, it is a bit like a thriller. Um, you, you begin to try and work out for yourself who's telling the truth, who's lying, why is she lying, why is she a hypocrite, what was going on? And that was really, I think, the, the main work of the novel, was finding the form. I mean, what about you, Kate? Because obviously your book spans from 4 AD to 2009. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just that little matter of getting a grip on ancient <laughs> Christian codexes and so yeah. forth. Um, yeah, I mean... It, Exactly the same, although I think we use our research differently in a way, in that, because I've read all of Michelle's books and uh, love her, all of them, and I'm embarrassed to admit, did read when I was writing Citadel, Red Ignorance, you know, just to make <laughs> sure I was you know, on the right track. Um, and what I do is I am interested in, in telling the history, but superimposed upon that is an imaginary story and an imagined cast of characters. So all of the people that live on the page are made up, um, although there are mentions to real people in the background. And that's very important to me. I don't like the idea of voicing people who lived and making up stuff that they might have said. That's always felt uncomfortable to me, and I, and I don't do that. But I do want um, people, if they want to know what happened in July 1944 in Carcassonne, to have a sense that they know. So, because I, I enjoy history, I read a lot of non-fiction, and, um, and I, I like the idea that different readers will get different things from, from the book. And it's why I always do a list of books that I have used in research at the back of the book, because I hope that someone who thinks I'm really interested in, you know, for example, Michelle will know this, um, but there is, you know, this, this quite well-known story of, of something called the Ghost Train, which was the last train to leave the South um, from Louveni, um, heading for Dachau. And it left in June 1944. And because everything was falling apart for the Nazis at that point, um, although it still took some eight months for it to, to be done, eight, nine months for it to burn. Um, the train was sent up, and then it was sent back, and then it was sent, and it became something that didn't exist in the system. But people in Carcassonne can remember, and there is a, there is a plaque um, at the railway station in Toulouse saying, you know, the train was here on this particular day. 
Um, and so for me, there will be people, I hope, who read Citadel who will think, I would really like to know, exactly as you say, it's a question of respect for the people who died, what actually happened on that train. I'm not writing the story of the train, and I have a character on the train. But like Michelle, I've made the same decisions, um, was that the story after France was liberated, the story became that French men had saved France, whereas the reality was that it was Spanish communists, it was German pacifists, it was French Jews, and it was Jewish and French men and women. There were many people in the resistance, not, not just one type of person. And so I have a Jewish character who is sent to um, Dachau and who, get, who comes home. And I have a young Jewish woman who is hidden by her friends all the way through the war, and I won't say what happens to her or anybody else. Um, but no, it's exactly making that decision mm. that the narratives were that all the Jewish people either were deported or got to America or, or Britain. Whereas in Carcassonne, Jewish people stayed and fought beside their neighbors and their neighbors protected them. Not huge numbers of people. So it's that with the research, that you, you do it and you get carried away by it and you're really excited. And, um, and I like early Christian history, so I was sort of like, oh, that's amazing, you know, all these things that were happening, you know, just imagining in Lyon. And of course, that was incredibly poignant to know that the first big mass book burning of codices in France was in Lyon, where, of course, the most notorious um, torturer of the Second World War of the resistance and Jewish people was Klaus Barbie in Lyon. Um, and you, you know, so it's that it's that thing that what research gives you, exactly as Michelle says, is this form. It gives you this wonderful way of the story sort of intertwining over 1,600 years. At which point, it doesn't become daft that you've got these two different time periods. Um, and it's it's partly as well for me of having been there in that part of France for 23 years. Um, lots of people already have read Citadel who haven't read the other books. But those of you who have read the other books will at least feel a bit clever from time to time, because you'll go, oh, I remember her when she was 16, and now look at her. <laughs> you know, so there's, so, and that's part of the research as well. It's the idea that the longevity of people, that people didn't move so far from their villages. Um, and, but the story of the South, you know, for me, is, it is not the story of the North. And Carcassonne is still fiercely non-conformist. And, it, you know, people often say to me, don't they mind an Englishwoman having sort of colonised, you know, writing stories about their history? And the answer is always to that, better an Englishwoman than a Parisian. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I've got about a million more questions, but I think it's only fair to hand it over to you. So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Kate and Michelle... In the uh, gloom. Please put your hands up and um, someone will come to you with a microphone. So are there any questions? feels quite religious, doesn't it? This idea that you must stand up and make testimony. <laughs> but we testimony. offer a prize for the first question. <laughs> well, Elizabeth could have her question. Yeah. <laughs> Does, I mean, I've just got a really simple question about how you write. Um, because obviously, Kate, you've got to structure 800 word, you know, 800 page novels. And Michelle, you've got a very sort of poetic style. Is there, is there anything that you do? do you, are you superstitious? Do you use a favorite pen? <laughs> I just get up in the morning, I don't wash, I just hurl on some clothes, <laughs> I make some coffee and I sit at my laptop and I look at what I wrote yesterday and it's absolutely awful and I fall on the ground and weep and have a nervous breakdown <laughs> and then I get up very bravely and drink my coffee and I rewrite what I wrote yesterday <laughs> and then I write some more 
so that the next day I can repeat the process. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yes, well, I... Um, Probably I should do more weeping. But of course, the thing with adventure stories is you just have to keep going. Um, you know, the adventure works because of pace. And so what I do is I have two different time periods. I write all of the historic period in one go except at the end. Then I write all of the modern period except the end. The second draft is rewriting the first draft. The third draft is looking at it, realizing it's dreadful, starting again, and writing it all the way through. So starting to mix up the time periods and putting them back together, and then the end I write at the end of the third draft. And the reason for that is that with big, big novels, um, sort of those old-fashioned epic -y novels, it is about keeping going to the finishing post and not letting the readers down by a dodgy ending. And we've all read wonderful novels. My favourite example of this is The Magus, which I think is a wonderful novel, except you can see that he got really bored by the end. It was like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> page 600 now. Um, so that sense of still being excited when you're writing towards the end, you know, you'll sort of trip, you know, if you fall, you will never get up again, but as long as you can keep on your feet, it will be all right, is very important. And when I write, I, I research probably for three years until um, I feel I know, know it all, and then I start writing, and I write every day, and I write sort of eight, ten hours a day, and I start very early, and I just blast it through. Um, and then it's the edit where the magic happens, um, because that's how it works. I do a lot of book research, but like Michelle, I do a lot of physical research as well, which is either talking to people or physically being there in the place, because the sort of Carcassonne and the Languedoc is in a way the most important character for me. Um, and with Citadel, because it's a women's resistance unit, I suddenly realised I'd never even held a gun, let alone fired one. And that actually, if I wanted my readers who do know about guns, to feel they can trust me for the rest of the story. You need to know what it feels like. And of course, this was really difficult, quite understandably, after Dunblane. You can't just go firing guns willy-nilly. Oh, but you can in France. You go and find the local it, farmer they, who goes hunting and say, please, 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 can I come hunting with you? No, did no, you, you not can, do that? Well, no, I did, but I wanted to fire pistols, oh, not okay. rifles. Not um, rifles. Because <laughs> most of the resistance, as you know, nicked weapons from... Mm other people and they had pistols so but I have an agent who, who um, represents every single soldier bomb disposal person and indeed hostage um, who's ever written a book in the UK so whether it's Johnson Bahari, Andy McNabb, John McCarthy you know and so he fixed it for me so I was taken to the MOD training range at Shrivenham had to give my passport in and Chris Hunter who wrote a wonderful book called um, Eight Lives Down he was the main bomb disposal man in Afghanistan for the British Army and my agent and I went. And you could see that they'd been told that a lady novelist was coming. <laughs> and their faces were like, <laughs> But then, of course, I arrived going, oh, show me, you know. Um, and for the next five hours, they were amazing. They got out Lugers, Mausers, Walter P45, they got out Lee Enfields, they got Schmeisers, the whole lot. And it was, one, it was appallingly good fun, although I was dreadful at shooting anything and hitting a target. But it was very, very helpful as a piece of research because once I'd had that day and discovered that I couldn't fire a pistol to save my life, one, I knew 
all of the things that Michelle will have come across as well in her research, that people in the resistance always seem to be shooting themselves in the foot or up the leg or something, and you thought, why were they so useless? And then you see these guns, and you realise they're inaccurate, they always jam, they've been stolen, they, you know, all of those things. It also made me realise that if I wanted Sandrine to be the hero I wanted her to be, and her lover, Raoul, it's, a, you know, the heart of the novel is actually a love story, oddly. I've never written one before, but it turned into a love story at the heart of it. If they were going to be resistance people that people could believe in, that were going to be leading the resistance, then she couldn't be incompetent. As a result of having done that physical research, she blows stuff up. Because I thought, I can't go wrong with a match. <laughs> Surely she'll be able to, you know, set bombs. And, it, and, and that's the thing that I love about research and writing, is that the research often changes your book and changes how you write it, because you realise you can't pull it off in the way you imagined it, and so you have to write it in the way that you can. Absolutely. Any questions from anyone? Yes, there's a lady there. What's the and then there was a man there as well. Right. You, you've obviously decided the topic of the book, and actually you just alluded to it a bit, that after research things change, but do you know how it's going to finish? Have you, have you got a plan, or do the characters run away with you and, um, and, the, and the stories run away? I didn't actually choose the topic at all at the beginning. I began with the image of a house. I was actually taken to see an artist's house in northwest France, which completely enchanted and frightened me because of all the strange things displayed on the walls. And this house so haunted me, I just knew I had to write about it. And then, for some reason, I realised I was in the 1930s, and the novel began from there. But I didn't consciously or deliberately choose the time or the topic. I obviously, because it was inspired by a real event and a real plaque, I had a pretty good idea of where I was going to end up. What I didn't know was who would be there, um, how they would have got there, and what the, what the redemption would be after that moment. Because obviously, if you're writing about the resistance in France, it would be ludicrous um, to not accept that there is going to be some element of tragedy in that story. There has to be because of the real history and respecting the real history. But I didn't know quite who my people would be. And I didn't, you know, and, and the thing about the love story element is I knew that there was going to be the parallel. I knew that there was going to be a, an old Christian story. I'm interested in stories of Christianity for, you know, in, in their various guises. So I knew there'd be those two different time periods, but I didn't expect Raoul to become a principal character. Um, and as I started writing the book, he, the minute he appeared, he said, you might think that I am a supporting character and that I am there as Sandrine's <laughs> lover, but actually I am a lead character myself. <laughs> um, and so as I wrote the book, it became at the heart of the adventure, and there is a lot of running around and blowing things up and, you know, guns and, you know, my, you know that, that sort of thing. But at the heart of it, actually, what became the tragedy at the heart of it was the love story, not the war story. And that, and that is exciting, because if you write long books, well, I imagine if you write short, shorter books too, but with long books, when you're working over them for years, you need to have stuff to discover too, because otherwise it's very hard not to be flat. 
um, you know, just to get worn out by the process of putting one sentence after the other. So it's always fun. And when I finished the book, I thought, well, who'd have thought it? And that is a bit what I thought. <laughs> a man over here. Is that? Brilliant. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you very much for the, the readings and, and the discussion so far. Um, I was wondering whether you, in, your, in both your areas of France there were links with special operations executive with British agents. Um, and more generally, whether you think there's much left still to be discovered about the resistance in, in your towns and areas. Well, the people I was talking to in northwest France, they were local, they'd been involved in local resistance groups, which was very low-key. I mean, they did have weapons, but um, they, they weren't necessarily shooting human beings. There was quite a lot of just trying to disrupt things, so mm. disrupting the passage of, of, of goods or German convoys. It was, it was quite low-level struggle. I mean, nonetheless heroic, because people would have got punished. Um, and the, all the agents who I heard mentioned were French people who, who'd come from probably around northwest France and possibly from Paris. I didn't hear any stories of, you know, Brits getting parachuted in. I think that history is still being written, um, as is, I think, as Kate says, the history of women resistance in France. Um, what I was shocked by, the untold story, you see, it's all to do with Jewish people. Um, round where I live, there were holding camps where Jewish people interned before being taken up to France to someone like Drancy or the Valdive and then taken off to Auschwitz. And those places have been obliterated, but you can find maps that show where they are. That's what local people don't want to talk about. And that history is still having to be written, I think. It's very low-key and very, very tragic. In, in um, the Southwest, there is, how should we put it, an element of irritation, shall we say, that the story is um, sort of seen as plucky British SOE agents coming in, saving the day and leaving, um, rather than it being about, exactly as Michelle says, local people doing their thing. Um, for, for me, the story that is starting to be written is the story of, of women. And one of the other things that is very um, marked, shall we say, that of the top level of uh, medals given to the resistance, not the, not the, you know, nothing is ordinary, not the ordinary ones for the low level, but the sort of gold star level uh, given by de Gaulle after the war. There were about 1,100 of them given out. And, and in fact, 11 of them were given to villages or towns that, you know, unilaterally, as it were, as a, as a town stood up and, and resisted in some way or another. But only eight or nine of, the, of those 1,100 medals were given to women. And most of the women who got them were American or British. So for me, it is the story of French women who were living every day with that fear of... And it's not in any way to not honour the bravery of someone being dropped from a plane, coming in, doing a mission and going out. But I would suggest it's a different sort of courage. To be a soldier or a special agent, there is an element of glamour, there is, an, there is a huge danger, 
but there is status, there is glamour, there is actually the ability when you're home to be the hero, to live under collaboration and make the choice that you will every minute of your day risk your life and those of people you care about in order to do the right thing. And as Michelle says, in the Southwest as well, um, there were internment camps on the beautiful beaches of Collioure, Argelès, Rivesalt, which were denied for years and years and years and years until somebody said, well, I've got his photo. I've got, and and the, the camp at Collioure had the word concentration camp mm. outside it, which had been denied completely. So, well, they were, that was a term, wasn't it, used you yeah. know, before Jews were being Yes, it, it simply meant, you know, everybody's put the that together. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, of course, until, you know, certainly uh, up until 1942 in Laverne, Laverne had been a uh, First World War camp, really, and then had been used to house Spanish communists fleeing across the Pyrenees from Franco. Um, and then it was, it was run by the French until 1942. It wasn't being done, run by the Nazis at all. Um, so it's, but for me, I think we're, we're doing the same thing, which is, it isn't, there are many books written about affairs of state. There are many r books written about military strategy. And I read a lot of them because I like military history and I, I, you know, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy battles, I'm afraid to say, you know, how, how these things happened. Um, but as a novelist, it is the story of us that I'm interested in, not the story of the people who led. Um, it's the people who, who stepped up. And um, so, and I think, like, I agree with Michelle that more will come out. Yeah. You know. I think I'm also interested just in stories about survival, not necessarily about heroism or indeed even of resistance. You could say that to survive is to resist, and I think it was true. So in the occupied zone of France, it meant that if you had anything called a bedroom that didn't have three children already sleeping in it, you'd automatically have a German soldier billeted on you. So that meant you went through the entire war with Germans in your house, and you had to, to deal with that. And the other secret and untold stories that interested me were of the women who were very, very poor, unemployed, desperate, who ended up working in brothels. And as we know, they got scapegoated after the war. And one of the sources of my novel, and that's what I wanted to say about research, research for me is about the visual as much as about the written. And there's that very famous magnum photograph taken in Chartres at the Liberation of these women being driven through the streets like cattle with shaved heads. And there's this young, beautiful one, she's got a sort of white coat on, she's got a baby. Mm. And she's got her head down, she's being driven through the streets. And that has haunted me ever since I saw it, probably 30 years ago. Mm. So for me, that was as much research as statistics. But it's these stories of, you know, what, what it meant to just stay alive and get into that bread queue and wait five hours in case there'd be some bread when you got to the top of the queue. That kind of courage. And I think we've got to put the stories together, like the incredible courage of Frenchmen fighting and the incredible courage of Frenchmen surviving in internment camps in Germany and the incredible courage of Jewish people who resisted. And, you know, women were Jews and women were resistors and some women were collaborators. Um, and it's just trying to imagine that human condition, you know. Thank you. I'm, I'm aware that we're overrunning, but I just think that's such a wonderful place to stop. Stories of survival and stories of us. 
I think that's a great tribute to the novelist's art. And I can heartily recommend, if you haven't read already, both Michelle and Kate's books, which are just utterly fantastic in their different ways. And it's been a real privilege to speak to you today and also to read your books. Um, uh, if you could remain seated while uh, Kate and Michelle transport themselves we to process. the book signing. You <laughs> process legally. Together. Lead kindly <laughs> yes, light. Like this. <laughs> um, and Thank you. And they're going to the book signing room and, and do go and, and get your copies signed. But thank you so, so much. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.